Sarswiti. Hello and welcome to City Break St Petersburg, Episode 4, The Catherine Palace. The Catherine Palace, of course, is one of the two great must-see, slightly out-of-town palaces, Peterhof being the other one, and so I think it deserves an episode to itself. Having said that, I think if I were to list even a 1% of all the marvellous things inside it, you would find the podcast quite dull, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to focus much more on the lives of the two empresses with whom it's most connected, both of whom were amazingly interesting and esoteric people. And they would be the Empress Elizabeth, daughter of Peter the Great, who ruled from 1741 to 61. And then you may know she was swiftly followed by her nephew, Peter III, who was only in power for not much more than a year and was done away with in mysterious circumstances. More about that later. And then his wife, Catherine, ruled as Catherine the Great for 30 plus years from 1762. These two ladies, I feel, both warrant quite a lot of attention. But before we get to them, I would just like to mention a third empress, Catherine I, who ruled from 1725 to 7, so only for two years, because it was after her that the palace was named. You may remember that she started life as Martha, a peasant from the sticks, but that Peter fell in love with her, married her, and although he was tempestuous in many ways, he does seem to have had for her really quite a lot of affection. And one of his ways of showing this was he gave her some land. And Catherine, for by this time she had been renamed Catherine, Catherine duly responded by having a palace built on this land in secret as a surprise for Peter. This, of course, became the palace later named after her, the Catherine Palace, the one that this episode is focusing on. Peter was thrilled. He loved it. We have a letter from him to her in which he expresses what he thought. Quote, the situation is charming and the pains you have taken to surprise me so agreeably entitle you to my warmest acknowledgements. If you remember anything about Peter's tempestuous personality, I think you'll agree it sounds interesting to hear him expressing himself so eloquently. But it was really under the reign of their daughter, the Empress Elizabeth I, that the palace really took on anything like the shape that it has today. She is said to have had Versailles, no less, in mind when she engaged the Italian architect Rastrelli to design the palace. And sure enough, before long he'd come up with the idea of a three-storey façade which was nearly 1,200 feet long. Elizabeth it was who decided to name the palace Catherine Palace in honour of her mother and she set about making it as sumptuous as she possibly could. A contemporary quote, for example, tells us that all the ornaments on the outside of the building were gilded, quote, with gold leaf oil. The value in gold amounted to above a million of ducats. And we're also told that the villagers at the time living nearby believed that the roof was made of solid gold, so splendid was it. Sadly, this wasn't true. It was gilded and it weathered quite badly, such that much of it had to be stripped away under the rule of Catherine the Great and replaced. Anyway, the palace was duly taking shape, 20 plus rooms, the highlight of which was the Amber Room, which was created really as a vehicle to show off the amber, which had been given as a gift to Peter the Great, Elizabeth's father, by Friedrich Wilhelm of Prussia. And a whole room was devoted to that. It was mosaics of this amber were placed all over the walls. Again, more about that later, but the amber room is still there today for your delectation and enjoyment. Needless to say, all manner of other precious materials were shipped in in vast quantities too, so that the place really would be very splendid. 
And just as an example of that, here's Simon Dixon in his book, Catherine the Great, describing the most expensive piece of furniture in the whole building, which was the bed in the state bedroom. Quote, with its shimmering confection of light blue French damask, fringed with silver brocade, this lit de parade was the most expensive piece of furniture in the palace. Above it hung a massive canopy, decorated with crimson velvet, into which a cross and crown, lying on a feather pillow, had been embroidered in gold and silver. The interior of the canopy was embroidered with the Empress's monogram. And then to add a little bit more flavour to the magnificence of the place, here's the artist Giuseppe Valeriani, who had been commissioned to paint the ceiling in the Great Hall. This is his description of what he was trying to achieve. The central panel, he said, would depict, quote, Russia, seated amidst the coats of arms of the kingdoms and provinces of her empire, leaning on one where the crowned name of her imperial majesty can be seen surrounded by graces with festoons of flowers. Next to her is abundance, pouring out horns of fruit. On every side there are genies of war and peace. In the foreground are the sciences and the arts, navigation and commerce, which the genies of Her Majesty's magnanimity and magnificence pour their horns of plenty to recompense and encourage the science and the arts. In the niches at the four corners are the four parts of the world expressing their just admiration for the heroic virtues of Her Imperial Majesty. Majesty, splendour, extravagance, excess, these are the words that come to mind. And we are reminded that the palace was being constructed or made over by Elizabeth really as a symbol of her power and magnificence. But of course she lived there as well and it's interesting to have a quick look at what her daily life was like here. So we're told, for example, that she was very fond of hawking and hunting with hounds. That was often something she did between lunch and dinner. She liked to go grouse shooting in the autumn, and she loved socialising and entertainments and parties, so there would be theatrical performances, often starting late at night and continuing into the wee small hours. As one example, Elizabeth finished the carnival season of 1748 with, quote, a magnificent bal masque and a supper of 150 covers in the opera house, which she honoured with her presence until three o'clock in the morning. It was Elizabeth's stated aim to run one of the most dazzling courts in the whole of Europe. Again, this idea of Russia wanting to get in with Western Europe to do anything that could be done there better and more extravagantly. The French writer Voltaire had something to say about this. He noted the splendour of Elizabeth's court and said the following, Magnificence and taste have in every respect replaced barbarity. I assume the barbarity is referring back to the days of Peter the Great and further back into history. Elizabeth wanted to do better than that. So what was she like personally? Well, she's very linked to this palace because it had been her mother's favourite summer residence and so she spent a lot of her childhood here. And when she took over, she looked both backwards into history and forwards and is said to have said, quote, My friends, just as you have served my father loyally, now serve me. So she was sort of saying, I'm a continuation, but actually she set about changing things pretty quickly. She was, again, seen to show a lot of extravagance. So between the reign of her father, Peter, and herself, there had been another empress, Anna, and I found a nice comparison between the expenditure of the two. So, for example, where the empress Anna had three chamber pages, Elizabeth had seven. She had 14 pages to Anna's only eight. And she kept creating new offices, new people that she needed to serve her. So, for example, a chief cellar master was appointed. 
and a maître de garde-robe, master of the wardrobe. There were coffee servers and table setters, wine pourers, and the budget for food and entertainment doubled almost immediately. Even more interesting, it's said that the bill for sweets at the court rose by a factor of seven once Elizabeth took over. She kept very strange hours. She was often known to get up at, say, 2am, wake her servants up and order dinner. And we're told in the book The Romanovs by Simon Sebag Montefiore that she was, quote, an autocrat and fashion despot. And he goes on to tell us what he means by telling us that there were 15,000 dresses to be found in her wardrobe after she died and several thousand pairs of shoes. You wonder, don't you, what all the millions of serfs made of this? She was personally very domineering, even to her family. Catherine, who married her nephew Peter, wrote the following, quote, The Empress was very angry that we had no children and wanted to know whose fault it was. And although she was happy to be surrounded by lots of servants to see to her every whim, she wasn't above telling people privately that people in general, especially very ordinary people, got on her nerves. So she wrote, for example, to one of her lovers after an annoying afternoon when she'd been trying to get into his apartments in secret but couldn't manage it because she kept bumping into people. She wrote the following, quote, As so often happens, I could not enter your apartments as the palace is full of human cattle wandering about the passages. Charming. But it wasn't just with words that she was wicked. So, for example, she was very much known to be jealous of other women. For example, she banned anybody else from wearing the colour pink because that was her favourite. And if she was to wear pink, she wanted to be standing out. So... Then came an evening where somebody decided to flout this rule and a lady turned up at a ball wearing a pink carnation in her hair. Elizabeth's reaction was immediate. She had the lady's hair all cut off there and then in front of everybody. But in fact, it was much nastier than that because Elizabeth decided that this wasn't a one-off incident. This was part of a plot. So she had the other women in the ladies' entourage stripped naked and whipped, and some of them had their tongues pulled out. And the men fared much worse than that. They were dragged off to be tortured to death on the wheel. As Simon Sebag Montefiore, who's telling this story in his book The Romanovs, says rather dryly, quote, No one flouted Elisabetta's fashion rules again. What about her rule then? What did she achieve? Well, she gets quite a lot of good press for things like having stimulated the economy, and made the government more orderly and rational. Foreign policy in her rule was deemed to be a success. Russia, for example, defeated Prussia in the Seven Years' War and was very much seen as a major European power at the time. And most particularly, perhaps, she's remembered for her interest in culture and her patronage of the arts. Though this took the form of building new palaces, including the refurbishing the Catherine Palace, of course, and she was always on the lookout for paintings to buy. It's said that she asked her ambassadors abroad to look out for art sales and inform her so that she could see if there was stuff that she wanted. She it was who began the building of the Hermitage, St Petersburg's most fantastic art gallery today. She had her own opera and ballet companies. She had her own string quartet for private occasions. So she was instrumental in keeping a lot of artists and musicians and actors and dancers in paid employment and encouraging the arts. It certainly has to be said that her private life was scandalous. She never married, but she had a succession of lovers and used to say that she believed in, quote, a cult of happiness. Yet at the same time, she could be very pious. She used to go on pilgrimages 
For example, in 1744, she went all the way from Moscow to Kiev, which is nearly 600 miles, to visit Russia's oldest and holiest city. She didn't exactly set off by herself. She took 230 courtiers with her and hundreds of servants. But it was not an undertaking she took on lightly. Here's Robert K. Massey in his book, Catherine the Great, on this subject. Quote, While the grandees of the Russian court rode in velvet-cushioned carriages, Elizabeth took penance and pilgrimages seriously. And he goes on to relate that she walked all the way, sweating, murmuring prayers, and stopping to pray at every village church and wayside shrine. Certainly she was being pious, she was showing her piety to everybody, and she was probably finding a way to present the new dynasty to the Russian people, many of whom, of course, would barely have heard about the Empress Elizabeth. So how to sum her up? Well, she's a mix of things. Simon Sebag Montefiore puts it like this, quote, She remains notorious for her fashion addiction and social tyranny. Yet she restored Russian pride and imperial authority and clarified the succession. Yes, I think that's probably all true, but I can't resist ending with a couple of the juicier details. So I read somewhere, for example, that she used to like to hold a transvestite ball because she thought she personally looked good in male costume, so she imposed this on everybody so that she could show off. And another little detail from a ball, one evening she became so enraged at the beauty of a rival's dress that she took a pair of scissors and cut it to shreds while the poor lady was wearing it. So definitely imperial, but also imperious and, let's face it, quite petty. After her death, there was a short interlude when she was succeeded by her nephew, Peter III, exactly as she'd planned, but that didn't last very long and he was soon replaced by his wife, Catherine a story which needs explaining in a little bit of detail. So Catherine, as you may remember, was originally a minor German princess whom Elizabeth chose as a wife for her nephew Peter, with the succession in mind. We learn fairly soon that the two women didn't really get on. We have a quotation from Catherine about her aunt-in-law saying that she was, quote, sustained by the thought that sooner or later I should succeed in becoming sovereign empress of Russia in my own right. Her husband Peter only reigned for a very short time and disappeared in rather mysterious circumstances, something related to us in the book Catherine the Great, written by Robert K. Massey. He tells us that Peter was out for the evening in the company of one Alexis Orlov, somebody that Robert Massey describes as being, quote, a soldier untroubled by violent death. This is how he describes what happens, quote, During the meal, everyone drank heavily. Then, because they had planned it, or because there was quarrelling that soared out of control, they fell on Peter and attempted to suffocate him by placing him under a mattress. He struggled and escaped. They pinioned him, wrapped a scarf around his neck and strangled him. It does have to be said that it's never really been decided to what extent this was an accident and how much it was planned. We do know that when Catherine was brought the news, she screamed out, My horror at this death is inexpressible. We know too that she had Peter's body opened up for an autopsy. It's said that she perhaps was careful to pick doctors who could be trusted to clear Orloff. Anyway, what they found when looking for, say, evidence of poisoning, that there was no such thing. And their conclusion was that Peter had died of natural causes, probably an acute hemorrhoidal attack, a colic which had affected his brain and brought on an apoplectic stroke. 
Amusingly, the phrase hemorrhoidal colic was then taken in the years afterwards to be a euphemism for political murder. So I think that tells us what most of the Russians thought had happened. I read some gory details in Simon C. Montefiore's book, The Romanovs, about Peter being in his coffin with a cravat covering his throat and a hat lowered down over his blackened face. We know that Catherine said, quote, My glory is spoilt. Posterity will never forgive me. But we also know that the succession and the coronation was very swiftly arranged. She made a ceremonial re-entry into St. Petersburg from the country on a day when 11,000 soldiers were put in place lining the streets. There were cannons, there was gunfire. She stopped at the Our Lady of Kazan Church en route to pray. And when she arrived at the Summer Palace, there was a 101-gun salute and a crowd had collected to roar out, Vivat Yekaterina! Long live Catherine. And then there was dinner and fireworks and general celebrating. It's hard to equate knowing that with the idea of her being very much in mourning, isn't it? So, Catherine, what was she actually like? Well, we have a description from one William Richardson, who was at the time tutor to the sons of the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, and said that she was round and fair and comely, and also that, quote, she was gracefully framed, but inclined to grow corpulent. He also commented that she had a fair complexion, which, quote, like every other female in this country, she endeavoured to improve by the addition of rouge. He also adds the following to his description, quote, It would be doing her injustice to say her appearance is masculine, yet it would not be doing her justice to say that it was entirely feminine. So much for her looks then. What was she actually like? It said that she was very influenced by the Enlightenment and that in the early days she taught quite a lot about things like the idea of abolishing serfdom. But there was a revolt against her, the Pugachev Revolt, and poor Pugachev and his aiders and abettors were executed and it's said that after that she began to talk much less about the idea of abolishing serfdom. I think she'd realised that if she gave an inch the Russian people would possibly take much more than that. But she did do some charitable things it was Catherine, for example, who founded the Smolny Institute in 1764, which was billed as a, quote, society for the education of young noblewomen. You can imagine that in those days women's education wasn't high up the agenda, but Catherine thought it was important, so all credit to her for that. She also founded a foundling home, and she was incredibly hard-working. We know, for example, from a letter that she wrote in 1768 that she used to suffer from unbearable headaches which were, quote, due to overwork and the fact that for three years running I got up between four and five in the morning every day. If you wonder what she was doing all this time, we know that she rewrote the Russian legal code almost entirely and that she took that very seriously, so she used to go on trips and visits to see how things were going. In 1780, for example, she went to Belarusia to see how her reforms were playing out. She also wrote a comparative etymological dictionary, which was said, albeit not least by herself, to be better than anything anyone in the Russian Academy could have written. She wrote a long history of Russia. She wrote her own memoirs. So she was someone with a serious intent who put her mind to ideas and history. She was also a massive art lover. It's said that in the first 20 years of her reign, she bought over 4,000 paintings and her collection, in the end, formed the basis of the original collection in the Hermitage. So the Hermitage was built or started by her aunt-in-law Elizabeth, but it was Catherine's paintings that formed the initial collection. We have a little story that underlines how seriously she took culture. 
She had become very interested in the works of the French philosopher Diderot, and when the news came to her that he had become very poor and was having to sell all his books, she came up with a scheme, which was that she would buy them all from him, actually for much more than they were worth, but only on one condition, that he would keep them himself until he died and she would inherit them then. And she explained her reasoning with the words, it would be cruel to separate a scholar from his books. She does seem to have been a much more serious and intellectual person than her aunt or aunt-in-law Elizabeth. Here, for example, is a description of how she spent a typical day from a book called Anecdotes of the Russian Empire by William Richardson, the British ambassador we were quoting a minute ago. So about November the 7th, 1768, he writes, quote, Her Majesty rises at five in the morning and is engaged in business till near ten. She then breakfasts and goes to prayers. Dinner at two, withdraws to her own apartments soon after dinner, drinks tea at five, sees company, plays at cards or attends public places, the play, an opera or masquerade till supper, and goes to sleep at ten. By eleven, everything about the palace is as still as midnight. I think you can hear that does rather compare with Elizabeth's habit of ordering meals in the middle of the night and dancing and feasting and, until dawn. William Richardson also describes how she used to like to go out and about and meet people in really as normal a manner as was possible for her, given that she was empress. So he writes, quote, She frequently takes an airing, according, as the weather admits, in a coach or sledge. On these occasions, she has sometimes no guards and very few attendants, and does not choose to be known or saluted as empress. A bit later, he goes on to tell us that she is, quote, fond of having small parties of eight or ten persons with her at dinner. And when she retires to her palace in the country, she lays aside all state and lives with her ladies on the footing of as easy intimacy as possible. Any one of them who rises on her entering or going out of a room is fined a rouble, and all forfeits of this sort are given to the poor. But totally modest, she was not. In a letter to Voltaire, for example, she boasted the following... My garden at Tascasello will soon resemble a game of skittles because I put up a monument there after each of our glorious battles. Her personal life was pretty juicy. She's said to have had three children by three different husbands and a whole string of lovers and what she called favourites, all of whom were given titles and money. Simon Dixon puts it like this, quote, She flouted the conventions of female rule by consorting openly with twelve successive favourites, each younger than the last. She too was very domineering with her family. So, for example, to her son Paul and his wife Maria, she said, quote, Your children belong to you, to me, and to the state. And she was often seen to take the two older boys, though the ones most likely to succeed, Alexander and Constantine, away from their parents, sometimes for weeks at a time, just because she could and wanted to. So, how to sum her up? Well, I found a quote from the French knight Corberon, who had the following to say about her. Catherine is destroying her country through her morals, ruining it by her expenditure, and will end up being judged a weak and romantic woman. Some truth in that, perhaps, although I don't know about you, it sounds to me like if she'd been a man, he seemed to think she could have got away with a lot more of that. Anyway, it doesn't matter, because Catherine took the trouble of writing her own epitaph. Here's the self-assessment with which she ended her own memoirs. Quote, Here lies Catherine II, born at Stettin on the 21st of April, 1729. She came to Russia in 1744 to marry Peter III. At the age of 14, she conceived the triple ambition of pleasing her husband, Elizabeth, and the nation. 
she overlooked nothing to achieve this. In eighteen years of boredom and solitude, she read many books. Once she had reached the throne of Russia, she wanted only good and sought to procure happiness, freedom and property for her subjects. She forgave with ease and hated no one. Indulgent, happy to be alive, cheerful by nature, with a republican soul and a good heart, she had friends, work was easy for her, company and the arts pleased her. All of that is quoted in Simon Dixon's book, Catherine the Great, and I have to add that he goes on to say that, quote, that was not how contemporary critics saw her, and he gives examples of people complaining that she was never had, quote, true friendship residing in her heart, and that she was ready to betray friends, servants, anybody, to get what she wanted. So, I leave it to you to decide. So much then for Catherine herself. We do know quite a lot about some of the changes that she had made to the Catherine Palace because she wrote about it herself in her memoirs. So, for example, here's a quote which belies the idea that she was very much enlightenment woman and didn't want to queen it over everybody, because she talked about her intention as she had the palace made over as being as follows, quote, To summarise the age of the Caesars, the Augustuses, the Ciceros, and such patrons as Mycenas, and to create a building where it would be possible to find all these people in one. She went through one or two different architects. She eventually settled on a Scottish-born architect called Charles Cameron, who was set to work with a small army of Russian and Scottish labourers. And we have from her writings a description of some of the things that she had changed, which reads as follows. I have seven rooms garnished in jasper, agate and real and artificial marble, and a garden right at the door of my apartments. I have an immense colonnade which also leads to this garden which ends in a flight of stairs leading straight to the lake. She had one room made over and called the Lyon Room after the French city because it was hung with French silks between the mirrors which were massive, 13 feet long, 4 feet wide, again to make the room seem much grander and bigger than it actually was. It was Catherine who had the Chinese room finished, decorated as she put it with prodigious fine china jars. Next to that was the arabesque room where she liked to sit and play cards in an evening or chess. And next to that, a tiny little study which a contemporary described as being, quote, like an enchanted place, the sides of it inlaid with foil red and green so that it dazzled one's eyes to look at it. So although it was the first Empress Catherine who had the palace built and the Empress Elizabeth who really effected the major changes, Catherine the Great also left her mark in many places all over the building. Just to finish then, a few pointers towards the sort of things that you might look for if you go to visit the Catherine Palace. So first of all, perhaps a reminder that it's in a little village called Tsarskozelo, which literally means Tsar's village. Actually, it was renamed after 1918, and from 1937 onwards, it's been called Pushkin. Today, there are about 30 main halls and rooms that you can visit if you want to go round them all. One set of them, a suite of state rooms, is known as the Golden Enfilade, full of gilded carvings and ceiling paintings, parquet flooring, often mosaics of all the different finest woods that can be imagined. So you probably don't want to miss that. Equally, I think you probably want to see the Great Hall, which is the centrepiece of the whole building, really. More large windows reflecting gold, giving an illusion of limitless space. You might like to know that 130 master carvers were engaged when this room was first built to work on it, many of the carvings being gilded, many more being gilded, gilded, gilded everywhere. 
This was the setting for the most solemn receptions, for the largest dinners, for the masked balls. But rest assured that there was also an anteroom, the arabesque hall that we've just been talking about, where Catherine used to like playing cards of an evening. And there were other halls as well. There was the Cavaliers Hall for smaller receptions. And there was the white dining room for ordinary imperial family dinners. I think when you look at that, you'll soon see that it doesn't look terribly ordinary. The Amber Room, of course, is there with its floor-to-ceiling decorations, mosaics made of small pieces of amber, so an absolutely amazing, glorious effect when you take it all at once. It lasted for about 200 years after it was built, but in fact it was taken away by the Nazis. They stripped the place of all the amber and carted it away. And there has been some dispute about what happened to all of that amber. Anyway, the room has been redone. It was reopened in 2004 by President Putin and his German opposite number, Chancellor Gerhard Schröder. The Germans, in fact, had mainly paid for the refurbishment, I suppose because they were to blame for the fact that it had all been taken away in the first place. Nobody's quite sure where the original amber is. There are rumours that it does exist still and is hidden away. There's also the main blue drawing room that you might like to look at, designed again by the Scottish architect Charles Cameron. And in there, you might not notice the very ordinary English-style fireplace which looks, of course, a little bit out of place in a Russian palace, but which is there because the architect was British. Next door to that, then, there's the Chinese blue drawing room. The walls are covered in light blue silk, covered in colourful scenes of daily life in China and Japan, or at least what the artists of the day assumed that looked like. There are numerous examples of 17th and 18th century porcelain, The floor is inlaid in all the most expensive woods, ebony and mahogany, rosewood, sandalwood, maple. No expense has been spared. A bit further along, there are three different studies, no fewer, one of which belonged to Alexander I's wife, Yelizaveta Alexeyevna, which she kept as a library. Some of her books are still there. It's where she also kept her musical instruments. She played harp and guitar. There's a grand estate study nearby, which was the study of Alexander I himself, which he'd had built and decorated to glorify his victory over Napoleon in 1812. So of the many objects in there that recall this, perhaps the most noticeable is the painting on the wall of Alexander's entry to Paris. One last part of the building that you might like to visit is the Church of the Resurrection. And if you want to think what historical things happened in there, they would include the baptism of Nicholas I. And it's also the place where the coffin of Alexander I lay in state before his funeral. Outside, of course, there's the wonderful park, formal gardens just in front of the palace, and then spreading parkland filled with all kinds of follies and pavilions and ponds and statues. So just to mention a few of the things in there, I think the nicest thing really is to just wander around and see where you get to. But if you want to head for particular things, there's a grotto, which took 20 years to build and is believed to have more than 250,000 shells as decoration, which was built near the pond as a sort of resting place that you could retire to if you'd done a bit too much boating or a bit too hot. Then there's a hermitage, which served really as a shelter for royalty to retreat to so that they could relax with just their very closest entourage, be away from the palace and all those servants. A building you're bound to notice, because it looks a bit unusual, is the one known as the Turkish Bath Pavilion, which was built to commemorate Russia's victory over Turkey in 1828 and 9. It's based on the design of a mosque, an oriental mosque, and if you go inside, it's decorated in Byzantine style, so jewel colours, 
fountains brought from Turkey, that sort of thing. In the distance, there are one or two other places, not really connected with this palace, but just part of the village in general. The Alexander Palace, for example, which was commissioned by Catherine the Great for her grandson, the future Alexander I. In fact, that's going to feature heavily in a future episode because it was in that building that the family of Nicholas II, he and his wife Alexandra and their four daughters and son Alexei, that was their last home in St. Petersburg before they were taken away because of the Russian Revolution. It was the last place where they lived together as a family before they, well, they were under house arrest even there, really, but eventually they were taken away, far away from St. Petersburg. And also part of Tsarskazelo, a couple of other buildings, which I'll be referring to in future episodes, and they are both connected with Pushkin. There's the house that he lived in, and there's the school that he attended as a pupil. There's so much to see. I think you probably find a day won't be long enough for all those things. I think you could certainly spend a day in the Catherine Palace and grounds. You could probably spend a day in either of the other places too. So basically then, the Catherine Palace, a place to come to remember the excesses of the imperial era and especially perhaps the lives of the three empresses who were most connected with it. So that would be Catherine I, wife of Peter the Great, who had it built, the Empress Elizabeth, their daughter, who had it made into the fantastic palace it became, with much fancier decoration and really thinking big and making it an imperial palace to impress anybody. And thirdly then, Catherine the Great, who also had a big impact on how the building looked and who spent a lot of her time there. So that's the end of this episode. Just to point out that for the next episode, going back into town, I'm going to do an episode on the Nevsky Prospect, which is the three-mile-long Central Avenue, the spine of St. Petersburg, if you like, which is the heart of the city and which is the site of some of the city's most iconic buildings, places like the Church of Our Lady of Kazan and the Church of the Spilled Blood. So all of that to come in the next episode. There's history oozing out of the pores of so many of those buildings. We'll see what we can summarise in a half hour or so. So that's something I hope you'll look forward to. But for the moment, can I just thank you very much for listening. Spasibo. And sign off then in Russian or an attempt at Russian. Do let me know if it sounds really terrible. It may do. I don't speak much Russian. But anyway, if I want to say goodbye to you, I sign off with the word Dosvidanya. <laughs>